If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Today, I welcome Joe Vello to the podcast. Joe has looked at life from both sides now. In the first part of his career, he worked in marketing and buying for major retail corporations. His work, in fact, with a textile manufacturer took him to India four to five times a year during his early career. And he also had the opportunity to visit China, Indonesia, Thailand, Greece, the Philippines, and Africa when he was a buyer for Pure One. His travels are fascinating, and listeners, you know that I love to travel and talk about travel, but that's not why we've asked him to be on the podcast today. Joe's other career has been in the corporate world in community affairs. Now, that's another name for community giving or corporate gifts. It was there that Joe had the opportunity to meet with the executive directors and development directors of nonprofits that were supporting all types of missions and issues. So women's issues, HIV, AIDS, education, arts, culture, and the environment. And now listeners get this. Every year, Joe was responsible for administering $15 million in grants. Now, wouldn't you like to get a slice of some of that corporate giving for your nonprofit? Imagine what you could do with a grant for $25,000, or $100,000. And so today, Joe, who, by the way, has also been a development director, and that's why I said he's been on both sides of this, is going to help us understand how nonprofits can build relationships with corporations that result in real money. And he's going to share a bit about how he transitioned from rug buying in India to community engagement with Macy's. So now let's get to it. Hey, Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dolph. I'm very, very happy to be here. So you've got to share with our listeners what prompted your move from working to bring money into the company because you're a buyer and you're marketing to a position where your job is to give money away for the company. It happened quite by accident. Um, 
1999 and 2000, I chaired the Macy's Corporate United Way campaigns, and they were very, very successful. I was a merchant at the time. I was in the home furnishings part of the, of the business. And with those two very successful United Way campaigns, it took me and put me in the forefront and, and highly visibly to uh, senior executives in the company. So when the uh, vice president of community affairs announced her retirement in early 2002, uh, senior management actually approached me about that position. And uh, that particular discussion on that day was one of the highlights of my professional career. That is awesome. Let's take a minute, though, and talk about those United Way campaigns that you were running internally. Because, you know, on the nonprofit side, we often hear about corporate United Way campaigns. How's the sausage made? What does that look like on the inside? It is so much work. And for me, I was connected to United Way campaigns way back when I was just two years out of college. I was a loaned executive as a department manager at Macy's. I was a loaned executive for a United Way campaign uh, in 1981. And that was my humble beginnings with the contact with United Way. I have touched United Way campaigns for almost 20 years. And the secret ingredient is plan early, develop that roadmap to the nth degree, be as specific as you can possibly be, get folks energized from the get-go, uh, recruit captains that want to be part of the campaign, not have to be part of the campaign, and set goals that are realistic. We would sit with senior management at Macy's, and we would review the goals of the campaign every single year, and it took some go-arounds to massage those numbers to make sure we were being fair to the community, to the United Way, and to Macy's. And so what did that process of massaging the numbers look like? Very, very detailed analysis. Back in 2009, Macy's, Macy's restructured completely. And I, I call it an implosion, if you will, because in my almost 20-something years with the corporation at that time, I'd never seen a restructure so wide and so deep. And one of the biggest challenges was the corporate contribution to United Ways. Uh, with a shrinking corporate contributions budget because of the recession, we had to look seriously at every single city where there was a corporate contribution to United Way. We had to make some very serious decisions in terms of reduction of those contributions. And we began an analysis, massaging those numbers, saying that, okay, if Memphis, Tennessee, is doing 3% of the company's business, then Memphis United Way should be at 3% corporate contribution to the total budget. So it was a very laborious and in some cases very painful process where we knew because these relationships were decades old and we knew we could not just take that axe and swing it. We had to be fair and judicious. So in many cities, we began a step-down program. We met with them face-to-face. -face. I would go, I'd sit, and I'd explain the reasoning 
as to why they're no longer getting $150,000 corporate contribution towards their campaign, why they would be getting ultimately a $25,000 contribution, and how in a five-year period we would step them down. Very fair, very judicious, and Dolph, I am happy to tell you we did not get one single pushback. They totally understood where our minds and where our hearts were. But now talk to me about those nonprofits that successfully approached Macy's during this restructuring process. So were there organizations that found successful ways to approach you and approach Macy's and and get a gift at a time when Macy's is saying, hey, let's cut back on giving? Um, Yeah, first and foremost, the, um, the amount, the quantity of nonprofits, this is back in 2010 now, uh, as we came out of the restructure in 2009, the quantity of nonprofits we were supporting, for, of course, the country needed to be reduced because the budget was significantly reduced. And we spent hours, hours, hours analyzing and looking at the partnerships, the relationships. We had, we created spreadsheets. We looked at how much we were giving every organization in every city. And uh, we would go ahead and have those three columns, must continue, should continue, do not continue. Once that exercise was done, Dolph, you would be surprised. It was actually money left. There was actually some money left over. Those nonprofits that were on the must continue list, what did they do to make sure they were on the must continue list? They were incredible partners with me. What does that look like? Tell me what that looks like. It looks like from the from right out of the gate that that partnership is a a win win win. It's a win for the nonprofit. It's a win for the corporation. In this case, it was Macy's, and absolutely a win for the end recipient. And when we say win win win, how did we define that? And it's defined not necessarily saying, oh wow. You know, corporations are supposed to give money to nonprofits because that's what you're supposed to do. The win is defined more in terms of how how Macy's in a corporate giving entity is perceived for their generosity and ultimately how that amount of money, whatever it may have been, produced tangible, measurable results. So that also took a new mindset because the old school was, Give the money out there because it's the right thing to do. And the new mindset post-recession is you have to be fiscally responsible agents of shareholder money. So let me ask you, so let me ask you this. So for those folks that were on the must continue to give list, what specifically did they do that enabled Macy's to say, we got value for what we gave? They were able to give us those tangible, measurable results in terms of how Macy's, through our contributions, were moving a needle. The needle may have been an education program, you know, a, a percent of students that were graduating, staying in school, improving their grades. It may have been for arts and culture, the uh, amount of exposures from a marketing perspective Macy's received into the eyes of the patron attending those events and activities. Uh, if it was an AIDS and HIV initiative, the number of reduction of, of, of in, in infections because of Macy's support to prevention and uh, early to prevention programs and education programs. So we 
at the, right after we would look at who was going to get more money, who was going to get less money, and who was going to go away. Uh, immediately behind that, we began to assemble matrices based on the areas of community focus. And there were uh, five, six questions for each matrix, but each of those questions had a tangible, measurable result attached to it so that we could begin at that point to be totally responsible. So what I think I hear you saying is that there was not necessarily a one-size-fits-all approach for who was on the must list, but for the most part, they were organizations that could show what their outcomes were and could give some level of and document some level of marketing benefit. So, you know, so not just what we put you on our website, but, you know, X number of patrons saw you because they came to the theater that night. And one side, one side absolutely did not fit all. And what we were doing at that time was creating a corporate giving program that was regional and local. So there were actually two buckets of money that were created uh, with what was left of the budget. Uh, we didn't, the national initiatives uh, were handled then by the Macy's cause marketing folks uh, because that engaged the customer. So we drew a clear cut dichotomy between what is cause marketing and what is corporate giving. And it worked really, really well because that way there were no intra-company squabbles in terms of who had territorial rights. Everybody understood the role and, and scope of their job. And uh, it, it moved beautifully in a really positive direction. Would event sponsorship, so an organization is doing a gala or a tennis tournament or whatever, event sponsorship, would that fall under your um, cause marketing? That would fall under uh, corporate giving. The initiatives that fell under cause marketing were initiatives that engaged the customer. And, and that was like the Go Red for Women campaign for American Heart Association, the Reading is Fundamental campaign for back to school, et cetera, et cetera. If the customer was asked to participate in an initiative that Macy's was going to do the conduit to get the money to those nonprofits, that was cause marketing, not corporate giving. It was, it was purely defined and it was, it was just very easy to, to, to make it all work in our, in our credit. So Macy's has a shrinking pile of dollars that it's giving away. And, you know, you started to, to decide who's in the, the must keep list, who's in the maybe keep, and then, you know, who's in the list of organizations we're not going to support anymore. And you mentioned that at the end of the day, you had some money left over and you were able to help some new organizations. In what ways could organizations approach you effectively who had never been funded before to try to get money? Like, what was the best way to, to approach you? First and foremost, the nonprofit needed to do their homework to look and make certain that Macy's was supporting the community focus within which their nonprofit fell. Uh, so that if it was Humane Society for cats and dogs, that was not a community focus for us. So therefore, it wouldn't be considered at one level with one, with one budget of money. Uh, if they approached us and we did, they did fit into that community focus area. The other, the other challenge would be for them to try to figure out what the competition was like from other nonprofits within that community focus. So that if there was a, a niche that they offered 
and that Macy's had a void for in their community support, it would make it a little bit easier for that nonprofit to come to Macy's and say, wow, I see you are supporting domestic violence initiatives in the communities where you have stores and you're doing business. We've got this incredible initiative happening on college campuses in regards to sexual assault. And it doesn't look like Macy's is supporting that. So immediately, um, my light bulb would turn on. I would be like, whoa, oh, wow, let's, let's talk. Let's talk. I mean, um, I prided myself, Dolph, in responding to every inquiry, whether it was a letter, whether it was a phone call, whether it was an email. Uh, I would spend a significant amount of time saying no. And we called it a nice no because we did it very diplomatically. But um, I was tremendously well-respected for the fact that I didn't ignore anyone. So if someone approached me and they had an opportunity out there that piqued my interest, uh, I would engage in conversation. My, my phone call back to them or my email to them would be, Let, let's talk. Uh, in most cases, because my territory was so large, they weren't local. So um, if there was a sense of urgency, I, we would have a face. To, we would have a phone call or, or a, a meeting. Uh, if it could wait, and if it was an uh, opportunity of in Boston, and I was going to be in Boston in two months, I would try to schedule a face-to-face meeting with them. So I definitely was fair when it came to opportunities out there that would be that win-win-win situation. And if I didn't have money, I would try to find it. Those nonprofits that successfully gotten money from Macy's who'd not been funded before, what did they do to prep for that phone call? Or what did they do to prep for that face-to-face meeting? They, they did a lot of homework. Okay? They absolutely knew uh, what we were doing in their community with which organizations. And they would set an agenda for the meeting. I, 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 I would... I, b- before any meeting with a nonprofit, I would kind of do a very loose agenda saying, hey, I'm coming to, I'm coming to Boston. Here's the nonprofits I'm visiting. Here's what we want to cover during that one hour meeting. Uh, a very smart nonprofit would look at that agenda and, and inject more specifics and into that agenda that I would always agree with because I think that, you know, you know, the cart wagging the horse, the horse wagging a cart, I think it's a it's a quid pro quo situation when you're dealing with a funder and a nonprofit. So I was always very open minded as long as, you know, I knew it wasn't going to take three hours because I didn't have three hours. So what types of things would they add to the agenda that would enhance the possibility of them getting funding? Well, one of them might be a site visit. Um, you can meet in an office building somewhere and it doesn't make any sense. Uh, I would I would. 99% of the time, if I was visiting a nonprofit, I would visit on their territory. But if they had uh, an office somewhere and they were out in the field doing the work they do, I would pretty much insist on meeting them out in the field. And then I'd let them take charge from that point in terms of a tour. I would call it a walk and talk tour because the bulk of it was not sitting in an office just talking face to face. Small part of it was. But the most important part was them really giving me a detailed show of what their organization was all about and where Macy's money would be applied and how far it could go to, uh, to make a big difference in the end. 
So that was that was one of the main things. The, the whole I would call it the walk and talk. So in that walk and talk tour, what were some of the biggest mistakes that organizations made that maybe they should not have made? <laughs> well, um, in some cases, the organization was not really prepared for company. You know, if the office is a mess, if the classrooms, the labs, if the uh, the waiting rooms are just not up to standard, there's a lot to be said about how they view their clients. I would often try to say, oh, excuse me for a moment, do you have a restroom? To see what the restrooms look like. I mean, I'm not being ridiculous. It's just the fact that, you know, Macy's money was, again, we, we were trying to be as fair and judicious with that money. And we wanted to make sure it was going to be an investment in the right way. You know, if, if you walk in and you're doing your walk and talk tour and somebody in the organization is in a panic mode because there's a fire that they have to put out, Fires erupt all the time, and I understand that, but there is a certain amount of prevention that can be done up front to make sure that, hey, I would totally understand if there's a fire going on and take the person away from the tour and let them let them deal with it because you got to take, ultimately, it's all about the client, ultimately. So if they were totally prepared for that visit, they would really have an agenda set. Uh, they would have their house in order. They would be ready in case there was a little problem, a one-off, so that somebody had to get pulled from the from the site. It, it's all about preparedness. So it sounds like the some of the biggest mistakes is the organization would not supersize the agenda. The organization did not really, frankly, make sure that their facility was clean before you walked in the door. And as my mom always used to say, cleaning is free. Cleaning is free. Um and and then some people maybe were running around like chickens with their heads cut off and it just just represented poorly for the organization. One other common error on the on behalf of the nonprofit was to throw out because you know you want you want to have your bragging rights and you want to talk about the other support you're getting in the community, which is great. Totally respect that, totally understand that. But um, they they need to make certain they would need to make certain that they're not relaying to to me the fact that they're getting so much money from other corporations that they really that that you know unless it's a hundred thousand dollars coming from Macy's they really don't need a five ten fifteen twenty thousand dollars grant they don't say that but it's, sometimes it's implied by them talking about the the Fortune five hundreds or the Fortune one thousands and the amount of money that they're contributing. And that would have me going, well, maybe, maybe they don't need our five or 10,000. You know, the smart nonprofits would relay to me the fact that every single dollar they got was appreciated and was applied to an end result that, that was really something to be very proud of. Nice, nice. So then now let's jump to the end of that meeting. So it's the end of the meeting. Do most organizations have a real sense of whether or not they're going to get funded by the end of that meeting? Or what does that look like? Um, if you do, you don't leave with a happy face, like, you know, try to lead them on. Uh, the end of the meeting would conclude with me saying, wow, what a great visit. Thank you so much. I, I'm very impressed. I, I appreciate your preparedness for this. It looks like you all are doing a phenomenal job in reaching the end, end client, the end result. Um, I still have to go back to my office, do my homework, sharpen my pencil, uh, do the arithmetic, and uh, let's see what I can do for you. But you know what? The other 
caveat to that would be I would challenge the nonprofit to make me an offer I couldn't refuse. What does an offer you can't refuse look like? Talk to me about an initiative that is so irresistible or that you can't turn your head away. You've got to jump in on it and fund it because you know it's going to be incredibly successful. And the nonprofit, if they were smart, they would build into that offer all of the elements that made total sense, all of them, so that they were doing the work and all I had to do was say, ah, absolutely. Or if it was something like they were asking for 100000 and all I had was twenty, we'd talk about it and we'd still reach a compromise, but they'd get money. They would get money. So the meeting has ended. And you go back to your office, you sharpened your pencil. What type of follow-up did the most successful organizations do with you before you made your final decision? Well, first, um, I would send them within a few days, maybe within three or four working days, I would send them a recap of the meeting because I would take copious notes during the meeting. And I cannot tell you how much nonprofits appreciated the fact that a corporate funder, especially someone from out of town, was willing to make the trip to their town and make the time during that trip to spend with them. But I would be taking outrageously copious notes. And when I get back to my office, I would collate those and I would send a recap of the meeting. And then I would send it to all the individuals who were at that meeting. If there was one person, if there were 10 people, I, I would do a business card swap. I would ask each of them for their business card. So I had their email addresses. And they all got a copy of the meeting notes. And from there, we, be, we continue the dialogue. Okay, we continue. So that was the first step in the process. Me being more uh, productive on my end versus them. And uh, my saying, uh, and, and in, within those meeting notes, we would talk money. We would talk ranges. I mean, and I would say, you know, somewhere between this number and that number, uh, still to be determined based on our negotiations. Uh, as a sidebar, almost all of the grants that Macy's gives are restricted. Maybe a half a percent of the grants are unrestricted, but 99.5% of those grants are restricted to specific initiatives. You send that meeting summary to the folks that participated in the meeting. What can they do in terms of follow-up to inch a little bit closer to either getting funded or getting funded for a little bit more? They, if they were really smart, they would send me an interest story. Uh, they would send me a story, a backup to the meeting that would pull on my heartstrings, okay? And, and, really, and give a great example of where money goes. And for me to say, wow, we have to do this. If this is how effective they are, if this is how well-perceived they are in the community, it is Macy's total advantage to be connected with, with them. Got it. Got it. And so one final question. You sharpen your pencil, turns out the tip of the pencil breaks, and you got to go back and say to the organization, hey, sorry, we just, we don't have, we can't fund you. What can that organization do in terms of follow-up so that maybe Macy's or you would fund them in a year or two years or three years? I would always encourage them to stay in contact, but I, you know, I cannot fund you right now. I would encourage them to circle back to me in December. 
because Macy's fiscal year ends January 31st. And Dolph, I would, I would venture to say that any corporate entity out there, any family foundation, individual foundation, they have residual monies at the end of the year that they didn't spend. So a smart nonprofit will make note of that, circle back in late November and say, hey, Joe, remember us? Remember we had that great meeting, that great discussion? Now, what's up with your end of the year budget? And I think you'd be surprised how many folks got a couple thousand dollars. So, so it sounds like maybe one of the things, even if that's not offered, is for a smart nonprofit to say, hey, can we follow up with you toward the end of your fiscal year? I would say absolutely. Joe, I am so thrilled that you're on the podcast. I, you and I have, gosh, probably known each other for a decade or longer. And in every episode, I like to ask my guests an off-the-map question. And it's something that listeners would not know about you just with a Google search. So when reading your bio, I noted that you like to collect postcards. And we aren't just talking like one from every state and you got 50 postcards. You are a pro at postcard collecting. So how many have you got and what got you started on this hobby? Okay, uh, I'll... I'll flip the, re- the order of, of your questions, Dolph. Uh, when I, I grew up in New Jersey, and we'd go to Florida as a family for vacation every year, and we would drive down, and my dad didn't like to spend long days on the road. He liked to do it in like a three-day trip. And we would stay in a motel somewhere along the way, and don't ask me why, but I would go into the room, and I'm talking I am a child, somewhere between five and ten years old. And I would go into the desk, at the motel, and I would pull out the drawer, and there would be stationery. There'd be writing paper, and there would be a postcard of the motel. And I would say to my folks, can I keep this? And they say, sure, sure. Well, from those humble beginnings, uh, I always had an infatuation, infatuation with travel. So uh, I would start as, we, as I was getting older and had a little bit of money out there to, to play with buying postcards. In those days, postcards were 5 and 10 cents. I would start purchasing some postcards of interesting places where we go. Okay, fast forward 50 years later, uh, I have about 16,700 postcards. They are filed in photo boxes. They're decorative photo boxes in one of the extra bedrooms. It's kind of cool because people are like, what, what are in those boxes when, I, when they come and stay? I'm like, oh, those are the postcards. And they're like, well, can, can we look? I'm like, you're going to need a lot of time to look. <laughs> but I am still, um, in, in, in my more uh, mature days, uh, yesterday I was with my dad at the National Infantry Museum down in uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, for the, fifth, uh, for the 75th anniversary commemoration of D-Day. I went into their gift shop. Now, before I went, I did check which postcards I had on file. And I went into their gift shop and... Lo and behold, they had two new postcards for me. So it's not over till it's over. Uh, it is a bit of a, a, well, there are, let me put it this way. There are worse things I could do in my free time. But these postcards are all categorized alphabetically by country, by state, by city. Uh, and they are all in an individual poly sleeve to protect them. So kind of scary, huh? So, so not scary at all. I love that. I have to share with you my own postcard story and I do not have 
about 16,700 postcards. But, but every year, um, I put together a scrapbook of Frank and I's life together. So, you know, so like all year long, you know, you collect these things, playbills, postcards, photos, ticket stubs, whatever. And then at the end of the year, I put together the scrapbook and anything that does not make it into the scrapbook that does not rise to the level that, yeah, I want to remember this for the rest of my life, I throw out. So then I don't end up with all this junk from year to year to year. But at first, I primarily took photos of places we went and put them in the scrapbook. And then I realized that none of my photos were ever as good as postcards. So if I, so like, if there's a really beautiful lake or mountain view or whatever, you know, and, and I want, and I think I want it in the scrapbook, I go and I find the postcard because I know that whoever took that photo is a, is a 20 time better photographer than myself. Hey, it's harmless. So it's all good. It's all good. Joe, I am so grateful that you joined us today. Thank you so much. And thank you for sharing your experience with our listeners and helping them understand some of the most effective ways that they can approach the corporate giving officers in, in their area. So thank you. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure, Dolph. And I sincerely hope that your listeners uh, truly benefited from our dialogue. I know that they will. I also just want to make sure that if listeners want to know more about you or want to connect with you, they can find you on LinkedIn and we'll post your LinkedIn profile to in the show notes. And if folks want to see what Joe did when he was at Macy's, and he's left Macy's now, but if folks want to see what he did, we will also link to Macy's website that kind of shows how Joe's 15 years as being the director of corporate giving there has really paved the path for the organizations that Macy's still supports today. And let me tell you, when you go to that website, it will restore your faith in retail corporate giving. Thank you. Thank you so much. I certainly appreciate that. Hey, Joe, thank you. If you've been busy making a spreadsheet of the myriad ways you're going to put your $100,000 brand new corporate gift to use, please keep at it. All of today's information can be found on our website at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. Now, Joe's tales of corporate giving have me thinking about other big money donors like Family Foundations. So check out our podcast on the Family Foundation office with Ranley Tilly Hall. That was episode 104, and if you'll recall, Ranlin explains what a family office is, what it does, and shares the best practices for engaging with family offices to bring big bucks into your nonprofit. Now, if you enjoyed today's show, please do me a favor and hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast platform you're using. And if you're feeling super generous, give us a rating while you're at it. That is our show for this week, dear listeners. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment.